1 Peter chapter 5, 5 through 7. This is the word of the living God. Likewise, you are you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you acknowledging that you are the Holy One, that you dwell in a high and holy place, that you inhabit eternity. We know that the God that we draw near to, we only draw near to him because of the work of Christ. We draw near to God the Father through God the Son. Lord, I pray that in this time that you would bless our time in First Peter. Father, I'll confess to you that I feel woefully inadequate to preach about humility. Who among us, who, who lives in the flesh, could possibly preach about humility when we are so riddled with pride? I pray that in this time, that you would break and reveal, Lord, in all of our hearts, all of the places that pride exists, that we might humble ourselves before you so that you can exalt us in your due time. I pray that you would bless the, both the hearing, the receiving, and the preaching of your word for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. For those of you taking notes, last week it was, the title was The Call to Faithful Shepherding, and today it's The Call to Humility. And I would like to begin this morning by asking a rhetorical question. What sin would you say is the most common in the world today and also in this room? I could tell you my answer. It would be certainly be pride. Pride is the sin of the criminal, of the drug addict, of the fornicator, of the greedy, of the obvious sinner, and also the religious fanatic. Both rich and poor will find this sin deeply entrenched in their thinking, their motivations, and their actions. It would be helpful to say that pride is an unbalanced estimation of oneself. It is a treasuring of treasure. It is thinking that you deserve more. In America, especially we can see that we practice pride in treasuring our treasure, don't we? We love our pride because we love our possessions. We love our comfort. We love convenience. In America, we're very good at being prideful of purchases that we went into debt for. Cars, homes, boats, vacations, and so on. We pridefully treasure these large possessions while the bank smiles above us, waving the banknote. Buy a home, by all means. Buy a vehicle, by all means. Only beware of pride in those earthly treasures, for pride will be most alive and well when we think we don't have it. 
We're also very good at the unbalanced estimation of oneself. Whether it be the self-centered pity parties that we throw for ourselves, or the overestimation of our abilities. If you trace either of those sins back to the root, you are sure to find pride there. Pride is quick to find offense. It is quick to hold a grudge. It is slow to forgive and quick to, to speak. Pride remembers all sins committed against it, and it rejoices in the downfall of others. Pride is found in both the back alleys where the drug addicts overdose and the church pew on the Lord's Day. Pride is insatiable. It can be found in those who lead us in song if they find themselves thinking, I hope people enjoy my singing instead of, I pray the Lord be glorified in my singing. Pride is found in the Sunday school teachers if they think, I hope they enjoy this lesson instead of, I pray the Lord be glorified in my teaching. Pride can be found in those who serve the church in any sort of way if they find themselves thinking, I hope people realize all that I do for this church instead of, I pray the Lord be glorified in my service. Pride can be found in the one sitting in the pew and thinking, I hope they notice me Instead of, I pray the Lord be glorified in my worship, pride can also be found in the preacher in thinking, I hope they think I'm a good preacher. Instead of, I pray the Lord be glorified in my preaching. Pride begins with self and it ends with self. Pride sits on its own throne and it knows no master. Certainly pride must have been the first sin that was found in Satan himself. It's written in Isaiah 14 of Lucifer. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will set on, sit on the mount of assembly in the reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What produced the words of Lucifer if not pride? Pride exalts itself and it finds no fault in itself. Pride is listening to me speaking right now and saying, I have not pride, but I know someone who ought to perk up their ears this morning. An old preacher named John Berridge had this to say of pride, quote, Oh, what is man? How easily we spy the vanity and inconsistency in another, and how hardly we discern it in ourselves. The foulest stain and worst absurdity in our nature is pride. And yet this vile hedgehog so rolls himself in his bristly coat that we can seldom get a sight of his claws. Pride cleaves to us like a shirt Soaked in tar, cleaves to the skin. No sharp plowing and harrowing will clear the ground of it. This foul weed will be sure to spring up with the next rain. Pride follows me like my shadow. It has such an amazing appetite that it can feed both on grace and garbage. End quote. It is pride in the heart that causes a man to say there is no God. Psalm 10. The sins that pride 
produces our legion. If there is anything that God hates with a burning fury, it is a prideful heart. And what a terror that truth is, since pride is all-pervasive. If God hates pride so much, then what are we to do? If it is so inherent to our nature, we see pride's prevalent, prevalence in our flesh, certainly. We see that it is indeed all-pervasive. So then what must we do of pride? How can we be rid of it? I want to quote Charles Spurgeon. Quote, oh man, learn to reject pride, seeing that thou hast no reason for it. Whatever thou art, thou hast nothing to make thee proud. The more thou hast, the more thou art in debt to God, and thou shouldst not be proud of that which renders thee a debtor. Consider thine origin. Look back to the hole of the pit whence thou wast digged. Consider what thou wouldst have been even now if it were not for divine grace. And consider that thou wilt yet be lost in hell if grace does not hold thee up. Consider that amongst the damned there are none that would have been more damned than thyself. If grace had not kept thee from destruction, let this consideration humble thee that thou hast not whereon to ground thy pride. End quote. We have nothing to be prideful for, and that's the absurdity of pride, because we will find everything to be proud of. But what's Charles Spurgeon saying? That the cure for pride is humility. Now let's rest assured that none of us will be done with pride this side of glory. We will finally put away pride when we stand before Christ. And we will finally see with real true eyes, in a way that we've never been able to see before, that I really had nothing to be prideful of. God is all glorious. God deserves all worship. But what does humility look like? So often we think of humility as a weakness, or as some sort of self-deprecation, wherein we pretend to put ourselves down but truly, humility is the distinctly Christian virtue of having a right estimation of oneself based on biblical truth that then produces the lovely jewels of gratitude, contentment, joy, and a readiness to serve. We read from 1 Peter chapter 5 a bit ago, and you could see clearly that the theme of the text was humility. In fact, Peter gives us three imperatives in the text, and they are all related to humility. As we study the inspired words of Peter this morning, our aim is to paint a portrait of humility, that we might see what this virtue looks like in practice. To do so, we will consider three manifestations of humility. Number one, if you're taking notes, humility manifests itself in submitting to church leadership. Number one, humility manifests itself in submitting to church leadership. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. In the passage that we looked at last week, Peter was giving exhortations specifically to the elders of the church. Now we see that Peter employs one of his commonly used words here 
to indicate a slight change in subject. And it's the word likewise. He uses it a couple of other times in this letter. He's moving from speaking to the letters, to, to the elders, to now speaking of the elders. Specifically, to speak of the relationship between the younger in the church and the elders of the church. He issues the very clear exhortation. Be subject to the elders. Be subject carries the idea of military ranking. It's falling in line, as it were. And he gave this same command earlier in chapter 2 and uh, chapter 3 when he said, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then he said, Servants, be subject to your masters. And now, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And just as it did in those places, the word is carrying a, a military connotation of soldiers falling into rank. It speaks to getting in line with the order of authority. If there's anything that many young men struggle with, it is getting in line with the order of authority. Now, I'll confess, there is a, a tension for myself in preaching this text, because I could certainly be considered a younger man, and I'm also an elder of the church. That's why, even in my life, I want to seek out older, wiser men who will have spiritual authority in my life. I am not my own king. I am not my own master. One could ask, why is Peter singling out the younger men in the church as needing to be subject to the elders? Doesn't the whole church, isn't the whole church called to be subject to the church leadership? And to that, we would say, well, yes, of course. This command is certainly not limited to only the younger men and women, but for some undisclosed reason, they are Peter's choice of focus. We're left to thoughtfully consider what it is about younger men and women that would give rise to their natural inclination to pridefully resist the spiritual guidance and oversight of the elders of the church. Many commentators note that the younger ones, especially, especially younger men, tend to be the most strong-willed and uneven and brash. We've all heard of youthful arrogance, haven't we? Those of you who have been with us as we've walked through Psalm 119 in Sunday school, you remember early on in Psalm 119, the psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? Does this negate the need of older people to keep their way pure? Is this, is this command, is this thought only for younger people? Well, of course not. However, there is a particular need for the younger ones the younger men and women, to seek out purity and to seek out righteousness as youthful passions will pull the younger man or woman in many directions. That's what Paul says to Timothy after all. First Timothy chapter 2, he says, flee youthful passions. Notice, youthful passions. He doesn't just say sinful passions. Flee youthful passions and pursue instead, young Timothy, righteousness. Pursue faith. Pursue love and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
That is not our natural disposition, as virtuous as we fancy ourselves. It is not our natural disposition to want to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace. We might pursue morality. We might pursue various forms of religion. We might pursue a form of love. But we're not doing this in a biblical sense, in a God-honoring sense. We're doing this in the pursuit of youthful passions. So we are exhorted over and over. Flee the younger, the youthful passions. The younger men and women in the church, though they might have come to know the Lord, they are still very much prone to the pride of youth. And so Peter directs them to be subject to the elders. He does not explicitly use the word humility here, of course, but it's certainly a manifestation of humility, isn't it? It requires humility for one to place themselves under the care of the other. It requires humility for a young man or woman to recognize, I need spiritual oversight. I need it. God has designed it so. And in so doing, he submits to being shepherded by the elders of the church. I will reiterate, this is certainly will go beyond the younger men and women. Hebrews 13 has the direction for all believers. Obey your leaders and submit to them. And it is in the context of the local church. We learned last week of the role and responsibilities of the shepherd. But the shepherd cannot shepherd if the sheep won't be shepherded. A shepherd needs sheep to shepherd and the sheep need to be shepherded. That was really hard to say. The elder's responsibility is to shepherd and the sheep's role is to be shepherded. Thus, when you join a church, you're not merely stating formally that this is the place that I will, can be found on the Lord's Day. You're also saying that these are the particular church leaders I will submit to. Now, pride will manifest itself in finding any reason and any excuse to not apply the text to their life, while humility will manifest itself by recognizing, recognizing God's created order of authority and submitting to his good and perfect plan, both the younger and the older. Number two, humility manifests itself in the attitude of service. Peter writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter is moving to address the congregation as a whole very clearly, he says, all of you. So in case you're wondering, does this part apply to me? Yes. All of you. Clothe yourselves. All of you. That would include the slaves and masters he addressed, the husbands and wives that he addressed, the elders that he addressed, the younger men and women, everyone. Everyone who is a part of the Christian community is now included in this all-important imperative. The sentence begins with Peter simply saying, Clothe yourself. We learn a lot of what humility actually looks like by Peter choosing these words. It's meaning to put on or to tie on, but it's very closely related to the idea of a slave putting on the apron for service. During this time period, you could recognize a slave from someone who is free when you would see this apron around their waist. 
It distinguished them from those who are free. Do you kind of get the picture here? Humility should so much be a part of who we are as Christians that it's immediately distinguishable. People can interact with us or watch us interact with others and they could clearly see that we have clothed ourselves with humility. It also indicates the attitude, excuse, excuse me, the attitude of a willingness and a readiness to serve others. Just as the slave has the apron tied around their waist in order to serve others, so those who are humble in heart are clothed in humility, ready to serve others. This reminds us of, and is probably in Peter's mind as well, it reminds us of the night when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. John chapter 13, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Jesus tied the towel around his waist. He clothed himself in humility. This is the incarnate Son of God, folks. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords taking the role of a servant to do such a demeaning task like washing the feet of his disciples. Jesus set the example for us in being clothed in humility. The one who is high and holy, who dwells in eternity, set the example of humility. He also shows us what this true humility truly is. Where pride is an overestimation of yourself, humility is the right estimation of yourself. John wrote in that passage, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things in His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, why would John include that in a story about Jesus riding, washing the feet of His disciples? What is the point of bringing that up, John? What does that have to do with Jesus washing feet? Jesus knew exactly who he was, didn't he? He knew what the Father had given him. All things. He knew from where he came, which was from God, and he knew where he was headed, which is back to God. He knew exactly who he was and that did not cause him to puff himself up in pride, but quite opposite. It caused him to wash the feet of his disciples in humility. If anybody had any cause for pride at any time in life, it would be Jesus Christ. Yet, he humbled himself. Notice further that no one prompted Jesus to do this, did they? No one asked him to wash their feet. No one was even talking about this. But Jesus knew very well that his disciples, who were obsessed over who was the greatest among them, they needed this object lesson as a reminder that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And in doing this, he exemplifies what a humble mindset looks like. It is ready to serve. It is ready to serve everyone, and it is ready to do even seemingly demeaning tasks in the name of service to other people. Jesus goes on to explain 
If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. What's he saying? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Humility is not seen in speaking softly or in holding the head down low or as pretending as though you have nothing to offer. Humility is seen in knowing that because I belong to God, because I have been forgiven endless debt, because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ, I can and will don the apron of service for my brothers and sisters. When you serve in the church for any other reason than the glory of God and to benefit the brethren, you will see how easy it is for pride to well up in either feeling too important for the work that you do or for finding offense in people not noticing the work that you do or being discouraged when others don't constantly recognize you. My friend, that's happening because pride is your motivation and service. But when we clothe ourselves in humility towards one another, our motivation and service has nothing to do with whether or not I'm ever noticed or seen because that person understands God sees me. God knows what I'm doing. And if no one ever sees it, if no one ever knows, God knows. I have all the reward I need in the next life. Though you might say that you serve for God's glory, truly it's your glory what you're after when you will find discouragement and not constantly being praised. We must, all of us, myself included, as the foremost, be clothed with humility. There's another way we see the importance of humility in Christian community, because he says with humility toward one another. This indicates to us that it's an essential part of relationships, namely church relationships. Tom Shiner, in his commentary on this text, said very well, Quote, humility is the oil that allows relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Pride gets upset when another does not follow our own suggestions. End quote. This is a great way of stating that humility is necessary for the relationships in the church to function, not just in a smooth way, but in a loving way. Rest assured that, that pride and love cannot coexist. You will not walk in love with your brothers and sisters if you harbor pride. You remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, don't you, about love? That love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. All of that explains pride. Pride is arrogant. Pride is rude. Pride insists on its own way. Pride is irritable when it doesn't get its own way. Pride is resentful when people go a different way. Pride rejoices at wrongdoing because it is an opportunity for it to exalt itself and say, ha, knew, knew it. I knew I was better than you. Rest assured that when you find 
that you're being boastful or arrogant or rude or insisting on your own way or irritable towards other people and resentful, you're not walking in humility. And thus, you're not walking in love towards your brothers and sisters. After all, love is selfless and pride is selfish. These two are diametrically opposed to one another. You want to know a really quick way to disrupt unity in the church? Walk in pride. Let pride go unchecked. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, wrote of pride in Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. That is a sort of prophetic word, a guarantee that if you find pride, destruction is looming. If you find pride, they are the storm clouds of a very major, tornadic, destructive storm. The prideful heart finds ample opportunity for offense in the shortfalls of others as they believe that they should be more highly thought of, celebrated more frequently, recognized more intently, and loved more ferociously. There is no limit to how much pride values itself. And when these things don't happen, they fold the arms and shake the head and say, I can't believe these people. They never appreciate me. I can't believe her. She didn't say hi to me. Rest assured, that is the voice of pride. Peter tells us instead, be clothed in humility in your relationships with one another. Well, what does that look like? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. This is humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know what Paul is saying? You have a busy life, other people do too. Don't care about just yourself, care about them too. Don't be selfish. Don't do anything from your own ambitions or your own uh, ends to, to achieve your own ends. Don't think that you're better than other people because of how important you deem yourself to be. Care about other people and do it in action. Surely this is what Peter has in mind in our dealings with one another. I can say confidently that if we as a church body would consistently apply that text to our lives, we would never have friction, ever. But instead, we would see that, as Thomas Schreiner said, that humility would be proving to be the oil that allows relationships to run smoothly and lovingly. How can we have, though, this right estimation of ourselves that humility calls for? By studying our sinful nature. We love to focus on the great things, the great promises of God. But do you ever take time to focus on and study how sinful you are? Do you ever take time to think about what Paul said? I am the chief of sinners. Do you ever take time to think about the deep pit that God saved you out of? And had it not been for that, you'd still be there. Pridefully puffing up your chest thinking you don't need anyone. But instead, God, being rich in mercy, saved you, plucked you out of that, 
Not so that you could then walk with your nose in the air, but so that you can constantly bow the knee to Christ, recognizing that if not for Him, I have nothing. Nothing. George Meyer, quote, Would you be humble? Then look at your own corruptions. Survey your features in the looking glass of Scripture. Consider well your own spiritual deficiencies. Study the failings of your character. If you know your heart, then none will appear so vile, so corrupt, so sinful as yourself. End quote. That's hard for us to stomach in America when we have come up with this culture of self-esteem where we need to think about ourselves and all of the ways that we're so good. But the message of Scripture is you aren't good at all. That there's nothing redeemable in you. But you don't need to be. Because Christ was good in your stead. And you trust in Him. And He applies His righteousness to you. My friend, do you want your goodness or Christ's? Do you want how good of a person you are? Or do you want how good Christ is? Do you want to depend upon your own righteousness in keeping the law? Or do you want Christ's flawless, perfect keeping of the law applied to your account? The heart of pride can keep its righteousness and it will fall on the last day. We can rest assured. Pride finds every fault in others, while humility recognizes that there are more faults in itself. Pride keeps a tally of what is owed while humility remembers what it owed. Pride looks down at others while humility puts itself in service to others. Pride is never responsible for any wrongs done while humility is quick to apologize. Pride says, I don't like calling myself a sinner. There are others more vile than me. They are the sinners. And humility says along with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. Beloved, if we would but put ever keep before us what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, we'd never dare lift our heads or puff our chests in pride. Instead, we would lay prostrate at the foot of the cross, marveling that we are saved at all. Peter gives us a major motivator for humility. He quotes scripture from Proverbs 3, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a terrifying reality, that God opposes the proud. He quotes, again, like I said, from Proverbs 3, and this is also quoted later in James 4, three different places this statement is seen, and the relevance of that is that it indicates to us that this is a very important instruction to pay attention to. It's meaning that God sets himself against the proud. Those who have high estimations of themselves, those who think they deserve more than they have, those who find sufficiency in and of themselves, those who love their things, God is against them. He is not indifferent to the proud. He is actively against the proud. When you walk in pride, you have the full force of Almighty God against you. Have you ever thought about that? All the force of the Lord of the heavens 
armies. The God who holds all things up according to the word of his power, he is against you when you live in pride. There is no quantifying the hatred that God has for pride. But there's no quantifying either the love God has for the humble. So much love does he have for the humble that he gave his only son. Do you understand that he gave all that he could possibly give? There was nothing better or higher or more precious for God to give than his son. And he gave him. He poured his wrath meant for you upon his son. All of the times that you've puffed your chest up in pride, all of the anger that burned in God's heart for that, he poured it on his son. And his own son died so that when you come to him in humility, knowing that you have nothing of your own to offer him, he gives you everything. <laughs> he gives you the righteousness of his son so that he now treats you as a child instead of an enemy. You're brought into the family of God instead of him being against you with all of his mighty force. Do you need more reason to humble yourself? What boundless, matchless, glorious grace he bestows upon the humble. Lastly, humility manifests itself in trusting God. He says, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is a logical conclusion to what Peter just stated about God being against the proud, but giving grace to the humble. How should we respond? We humble ourselves. How do you respond to God being against the proud, but giving grace to the humble? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. We don't kick against these truths. We joyfully submit ourselves to them. We humble ourselves to God's command to, to be subject to every human institution. We, we humble ourselves to God's commands that have been found all throughout First Peter and then all throughout Scripture. We humble ourselves to His sovereign plan when He ordains that we endure trials and tribulations. Think back to chapter 1 where Peter was referring to these believers being grieved by various trials. Think of the end of chapter 4 when he wrote of suffering according to God's will. These believers will need to remember that God is firmly in control of what's going on in their lives and all around them. And they need to focus only on humbling themselves under God's mighty hand. In saying mighty hand, he brings in many texts throughout the Old Testament they refer to the mighty hand of God being there to protect and to fight for. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He brought the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Do you realize how powerful Egypt was and how nothing Israel was? He brought them out with a mighty hand supernaturally. 
in humbling ourselves before God, we are reminded to have a right estimation of ourselves. He is mighty. I'm not. He is all-knowing. I don't. I'm not. I don't know why this trial is even happening. He does. We humbly accept what comes from God as both good, right, and loving. Think back of Job. Such a great example of what suffering well is. After he receives the news of his world falling apart, his wife tells him that he needs to curse God and die. To which Job responds, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In other words, shall we pick and choose what God gives us? Shall we pick and choose what we are going to receive from the hand of God? May it never be. Instead, we must humble ourselves before Him, knowing that He knows what's best for us. And, and He loves us enough to give it to us, even when He knows that it will cause us pain and distress. Did you hear that? God loves you enough to put you through trials. God loves you enough to lay affliction upon you. He loves you enough to cause you to endure suffering. He loves you enough to pop your little comfort zone bubble because he knows what it will produce in you. I want you to see something in how to do this. Verse 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him. The way it's written ties casting all your anxieties on him with humble yourselves. Have you ever thought about your anxiety that way? In other words, Peter is showing us that humbling ourselves before God involves casting our cares upon him, casting our anxieties upon him. What's the adverse of that to help us understand? To be prideful is to not cast your anxieties upon him. To be prideful is to carry your anxiety and your worry and your stress upon your own shoulders. It is not humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. This passage clearly teaches us that humility before God manifests itself in trusting God. Let me ask you, if you're trusting in God, will you ever find anxiety in your heart? No, you won't. Anxiety is not a fruit of the Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? Worry is not a fruit of the Spirit. Stress, not a fruit of the Spirit. Frustration, not a fruit of the Spirit. But you know what it is? Peace. How can you have that fruit? You cast your anxiety on God. And that involves humility. This passage is teaching us that anxiety is directly correlated with not humbling yourself under God's sovereign plan for your life. I would argue that one of the things that God is purifying out of his people in the midst of affliction and trials is anxiety and worry itself. After all, neither of those attitudes or mindsets, as I said a bit ago, is produced by the Holy Spirit. None of them are. 
They are imperfections. They are maladies in our heart that must be purified. And what does the Lord use? He uses the flame of affliction to purify our hearts before Him. You can go and recap 1 Peter chapter 1 to find that. Remember, pride is not just puffing yourself up. It's also thinking that you deserve better than you're getting. It's thinking you deserve more. So when trials arise that threaten your comfort zones, that threaten the bubble that you live in, anxiety and worry, they rear their ugly heads as you're anxious and worried that you're going to lose those comforts and convenience. Well, what's this going to mean for our bank account? Well, what's this going to mean for our home? What's this going to mean for this, that, or the other? My friend, that's anxiety and worry because you're not trusting God. Period. That's what this text teaches us. After all, are you the provider? Or is God? Who provides? Is it you? My friend, if you're the provider, I don't know what to tell you. Then you better be worried. You better be stressed. You better be anxious. But also recognize that that is a mindset of pride. Think of it. Everything that you have in your life is an undeserved mercy of God. Not only has He allowed you to keep breathing, but He's given you sharpness of mind, the ability to work, the ability to make money, perhaps a family, a spouse, and greatest of all, He's given you His Son. So when in the middle of any sort of trial and we begin to think that we deserve better or we can't believe this is happening to us or we think, why me kind of thoughts, rest assured that we are not keeping what God has done for us in Christ at the forefront of our minds no matter how much we say that we are. We're not in humility accepting whatever comes from God's hand as good and perfect, but instead we're looking at what God has ordained for our life and we think to ourselves, I deserve better. I deserve better than this. This way of thinking produces anxiety and worry and fear and anger and bitterness and a whole host of other sinful mindsets. Would you be free of those anxieties? Humble yourself before God. Notice that Peter directs us to cast that anxiety onto God. That is a brave act of humility. To cast your anxieties upon God is to confess that these anxieties are much too much for you. They're too big for you. And only God can pull you through. I love that Peter also, he doesn't specify these anxieties. He just says your anxieties. You don't worry about the same things that I do. I don't worry about the same things that you do. The early church has different worries than us as well as we have different worries than they had. But it doesn't matter what these anxieties are. The Lord bids us simply to cast them upon Him no matter how big or small they are. Not, listen very carefully, problem solvers. Not to find a solution. Not to try harder to fix it. Not to keep asking everyone of their opinion on the matter, but throw them off of your shoulders onto the more, much more capable shoulders of Almighty God. Throwing something off of you is what you do when you're done with it, isn't it? 
I'm done with this. And the thing leaves your hand and it is now somewhere else. I've had enough of the grief. I've had enough of the worry. I've had enough of the concern, the stress, the anxiety, the fretfulness. I cannot take it any longer. I must cast it into the sea of God's love for me. Casting your anxieties. It's plural. It's showing us that the cares of this world are many The cares that trouble your hearts are plentiful. It's not just one anxiety. It's more anxieties than you'd be willing to admit. But you who are pridefully trekking along with this burden that is too great for you to bear, refusing to give it over to the Lord for fear of what He will do and fear that you won't have a say in the matter, God Almighty bids you, bring it here, child. Not just one of them. Not just a few of your cares. Peter writes, all of them. Every last one of them. Are you worried of what you will eat? How will your family be provided for? Your father feeds the sparrows who are sold to for a penny, and are you not of more value than many sparrows? Are you concerned with how you will provide clothing and shelter for yourself and your family? Your father clothed the lilies of the field that are here today and thrown away tomorrow? And are you not of more value than many lilies? Beloved, your Father knows what you need. He is your Father after all. And as Peter says, He cares for you. Perhaps this is the most soul-stirring reason to not hold on to a single anxiety a second longer than it lands in your mind That God cares for you. It means that He takes interest in you. He takes interest in what happens to you. Beloved, do we really think that the Father would send His Son, causing Him to bear the full measure of your wrath and have His Son die at the hands of lawless men for us and then not provide our needs for us? Or not sustain us through every trial and tribulation that He ordained? Do we really believe that He'd give us His Son and then leave us to our own devices or our own strength once He's redeemed us? Spurgeon would say, Child of God, you you cost Christ too much for Him to forget you. Paul would say, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Don't tarry with your pride any longer. Cast your anxieties upon him today. But notice, to cast something off is to no longer take hold of it. When something is thrown from your hands, it is gone from your hands. And let it be so, for the Lord's hands are far more capable than your hands or mine. Humble yourself under the loving care of the mighty hand of God, knowing that whatever comes to you from the hand from that hand is both good for you and ordained from the God who cares for you. Let me be even more clear as we close. When you lose a friend, when you're worried about your taxes, when you're worried about coming down with COVID, when you're anxious about the cancer they've discovered, when you're worried and anxious 
about anything great or small. Do not pridefully hang on to that worry and anxiety, but instead cast it into the hands that care for you. And the text promises at the proper time, that is, the time that God has allotted, God Himself will lift you up. His trial for you is not an end in and of itself. Humbling yourself, it's not an end in and of itself. God lifting you up is the end result of humility. For that reason, and the others that we have covered this morning, let us manifest humility in our lives by submitting ourselves to church leadership, by clothing ourselves with a readiness to serve others, and by trusting God's loving plan for our lives. Let's stand. The greatest care anyone could ever have is the anxiety of where they will spend eternity. God has given His Son that we might cast that care into the loving hands of our Father by trusting in Him and casting ourselves upon Christ. If you've never trusted in Him, do so today. If He stirs in your heart, answer that stirring and cast yourself upon Him because He cares for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that it is so. We thank you that though you dwell in a high and holy place, though you are transcendent, though we couldn't possibly fathom the depths of your glory, you care for us. and You love us. And you know that these trials and our cares are much too heavy for us. Please help us in our pride. Help us to humble ourselves before you that we might have our anxieties cast off of us, that we might instead free ourselves to service and worship. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.